Kia ora and welcome to Beyond Consultation, a podcast that will help you in your public or community sector work to increase your impact by doing more than just ticking the box of consultation. I'm Paul McGregor from Business Lab, and we're interested in the mindsets and methods of people who are making a bigger impact by working collaboratively with communities, industries, and other organizations. Ma mihi mote Kia ora and welcome to the first interview episode of 2021. Now, you're listening to this show presumably because you care about society and democracy and communities and you want to see more people having an influence in the places they live. But one big challenge with this is that it can be hard to know what's really driving change in our communities. We can make assumptions but these are always going to be influenced by our own biases, whether that's our personal biases or our organizational biases. Well, today's guest is somebody who's pushing the boundaries of how we can use technology to make data more accessible. And from that, we can know more about what's really driving change, what's really driving how a city or a place forms and grows. And if we can harness the power of that data and make it more accessible, then the hope is that communities can make better decisions for themselves. So Sean O'Dane, he's part of the innovations team at Wellington City Council, and I first connected with him a couple of years ago on LinkedIn, and pretty much everything he was boasting about was something I'd never really heard of before, but which really piqued my interest. So things like smart cities, digital twins, regulations as code. It made me curious to learn more about, well, how on earth do we leverage those kind of high-tech sounding bits of jargon so that communities can make the world a better place. So in this episode, we unpack what do those terms mean? What is the work that Sean and his colleagues at Wellington City Council are doing and how it's beneficial to communities? There's some really cool stories about the council being able to take action on something much faster because the data that they had was available in a really accessible, visual, interactive way. And look, at the end of it, if you're finding, huh, okay, this sounds nice, but you know, a little bit beyond what I might be capable of getting into, Sean has a really smart and practical suggestion. So you can dig a little bit deeper into this stuff in a really low risk and, and fun way. So do stick around to the end for Sean's suggestion on that. Well, without further ado, please welcome to the show, Sean O'Dane. What kind of made me interested in your work was some of the innovative stuff with local government that you're doing, the digital twins, smarter city, and I'm interested in less the technological side of that sort of stuff and more what's the benefit of it for communities and citizens and how MySet help them to have more of an influence in what's going on in their area? Yes, no, my world is fairly arcane, but bear in mind, I was trained as a town planner, so it can't be that difficult. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always interested with town planners. Like, what do you think from your upbringing attracted you to that as a career path? Um, I wanted, I didn't want to be a town planner originally. I wanted to be a chef, but I had some things... <laughs> I had some things happen in life, which meant that it wasn't a viable um, option for me. So I had to find something where 
I, I wasn't working with food. So I, I basically sat down and worked out that I was actually very interested in cities. Being from Auckland, there's a lot of case studies in how to fix cities or mm. a city that needs fixing. And because I grew up in, you know, Papatoe and Otara, a big part of my aim in life was to move to a different community. So when you put all that together, you can sort of start to understand how you end up here. Yeah. So you're looking around you and going, mm, there's something's just not quite right with how this place is set out, out and what the systems are around it. And that kind of got you interested because of the problems in your own community? Yes. Yep. But also people often misunderstand town planning. Town planning is not about what shape a city is. It's about what are the forces that are shaping that city. So what you're actually dealing with, the systems, the economic systems, cultural systems that are causing it to take a form rather than determining the form, the determination of forms urban design. So So looking at the underlying factors and the underlying forces that shape the city. Yeah. Okay. It's got a lot more planners come in different types. I belong to the morphologic branch. We've got a lot more in common with sort of economists and scientists and measurers. We get on okay. really well with the engineers, even if we don't necessarily agree with them. <laughs> right. And what, what's the reasoning for that? Because we're, at a certain point to work out how a system is functioning and how it works, you have to be able to measure it. If you, mm. To measure something, you have to understand it and be able to work out what are the numbers required to express this thing and mm. once you get to that ma- language of mathematics yeah naturally you can talk to engineers a little bit more easily yeah and then the added complexity and interest with that context then is surely as soon as you start to measure something like a city by measuring it you're changing it and so it would get very complex very quickly i can imagine Absolutely. The way I liken it to young planners when I'm training them is uh, just imagine every single thing in your house is tied together with string and then you're going to move a cup. You've got no idea what's going to shift. And when you get right down to it, it's probably only four or five of those strings that are tied together that actually matter. The rest of them won't actually have any effect. Mm. The other (laughs) important thing to bear in mind is not everything can be measured or should be. And so it is perfectly reasonable to do do things for reasons that aren't rational and aren't scientific and aren't measured. That's why we have a democracy. Yeah. Um, Yeah. (laughs) And I think that's a nice tie in for people listening who may be wondering, Oh, why, you know, why are we talking to a town planner? The podcast is beyond consultation, right? More about community engagement. And so Sean, I've seen a lot of your work. So it's seen you talking about the work you're doing with Wellington city council And I'm really interested in, uh, you seem to be using technology, large data sets to connect people, to engage people, and then to transform a place. So yeah, I'm really really interested in unpacking some of that with you. So, I mean, maybe just as a bit of a background, can you tell people about about your work with Wellington City Council and, and what your focus is there? So I'm one of the city innovation leads. We have, there are about three of us at any given time. We're all quite different. There's Nadia, who's one of the other ones. She's uh, brilliant taking some of those systems of government and working out what their digital implications are. There's Julia, who's really good at delivering things. I sit more on the strategic end of things. So working out what the third and second and third horizons look like. Mm-hmm. And working out, essentially, where is the default path taking us? And 
is that default path where we want to go? And if it's not, we I help work out how we're going to change that. Mm -hmm. And because like any local government, we don't have infinite amounts of money. A lot of my work is around figuring out how we use digital mechanisms to change that physical world so mm -hmm. that we don't necessarily have to spend as much. And for those councils who are listening and going, gosh, that sounds really nice to have a an innovation team. Uh, what was the kind of the first steps for Wellington City Council to go, actually, yeah, we're going to start investing in this team? So the innovation team was set up about seven or eight years ago now. It was set up at a time when we were grappling with issues like how do we make Wi-Fi available throughout the central city <laughs> for free. But also the council had just passed a digital strategy. And so Philippa Barron was our first head of innovation, and I was seconded out of city planning to work for her. And seven years later, here we are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so it's kind of just grown from there. And I mean, you talk about your strength being looking on the looking at the horizon and going, what's next? So yeah, can you maybe try and summarize for us a little bit, like when you're looking out and you see this is the trajectory that your city's on at the moment, what are the other possible alternatives that you can see on the horizon? So a lot of it is really very mundane work. So working out with different departments, what does the future for them look like in the longer term, but also in the very short term? So for example, with some of our workers, how do we get the most out of them and make them aware of the digital world and start them on that digital transition? So for mm -hmm. example, we have local hosts who assist tourists, they work with the city's homeless, they do all sorts of jobs in the street. One of the things we did for them was transferred their reporting to onto their mobile telephones. Whilst that was useful for them in terms of now they didn't have to worry about trying to write on a notepad uh, anymore, which is surprisingly difficult to do in a Wellington street. <laughs> <laughs> it also meant that the data they the information they were gathering became yeah. data and it meant that it could then be interfaced directly into our mapping system so we could start to understand what the footprint of things like begging or I have a map of seven years worth of vomit of the city. Uh, <laughs> all these really quite mundane things but they can help you work out for example how to how to manage services more efficiently you know what round should the street cleaners take it helps you when it goes to talking to communities because if you're able to start talking about the, you know, this is the observed problem that we see through our systems, what's missing from that picture? It shows that you're engaging on a day-to-day -day basis, not just coming along because something has to change in that place on this one mm. time. The other thing it does is it starts to give you signals for things that might be going to happen a little bit later. So for example, one of the big shifts that's happening in cities worldwide is that shift away from the industrial city where goods are pulled in from the hinterland through the application of human capital transferred and manufactured into other things and exported to a much more experience-based way of working. So basically, it's not about having a harbour and a road and a railway anymore. It's about having a, a place people want to live. Mm. And when you s start to unpick the way city streets work under that paradigm, you manage them in a slightly different way. And it has an implication for almost every service the council does. Mm. That's fascinating, Sean. So the first aspect of that, you talked about being able to work with teams in your council and helping them to use technology and data so that they've got a clearer picture of what's happening sort of over the short term. I like that point you make that then it allows the council then to come 
and frame up a conversation with the community a lot more accurately. And yeah, so I can see the power of that. And then the second side of it, you're saying that there's sort of there's more longer term value when you can really look forward and see actually here's a big trend. And, and you mentioned the one of shifting away from a city as being a set of separate parts to actually it's just a place where people live and how do we ma- make it the best place for people to live. And so I can imagine you then in your role, sometimes you're talking to people and they're just like, blank face, you are totally in the next book. You're losing me here. How do you bring people along on the journey when you're, you've got like such a long strategic time, time frame to what you're thinking about? The first thing you've got to do is understand the best place to lead from is the place you're standing in. So you've got to go stand next to them. Mm. For some people, that means introducing them to the digital world. Mm. A lot of people don't view digital as real. I think that's where the Americans have got themselves into such trouble. They didn't realize that the sort of cranky computer game people were playing would result in their government almost falling. And so they didn't take it seriously. And there are lots of ways to do that. One of the classic ways is we produced a virtual reality copy of our city. That's how we understand some of the really big data sets. That's what people are calling a digital twin. Mm. And that by getting somebody to stand in their own front garden and pull up the sea level and see what it does to their trip to work, to see what it does to the pipe networks under the ground. And then from there, you can start to talk through, well, you know, if, if we replace pipes every 100 years or however often, and as you can see, the sea level's risen. And so that pipe there is only in the last 50 years, that's going to double the rates bill for that. You can start to talk about what these mean in terms of everyday conversation. Mm. Okay, I, I get it. So you're seeing this idea of a digital twin that you're talking about, and I wondered what the application of it was. So you're basically creating a copy of Wellington with as much information in there as you can, and then residents, citizens can go in and interact with that. Yes, at the moment they interact with products that are derived from it. So uh, for example, some of those VR experiences, it's used to help recruit people into some of the large tech companies from overseas. Mm. Well, not not so much at the moment, but it's the data underneath. It's also used to help create things like, for example, the carbon credits on cities' lands. So a good example of that sort of applied innovation is we grow lots and lots of native tree seedlings in our nurseries out in Berenpoor. Um, they're all eco-sourced. Those trees are then given out to community members to plant on the inner and outer town belts. Mm. Those belts are then scanned every couple of years as part of the big LIDAR scans of the, of the city, which where we're bouncing light around to measure everything to see what's changed. That helps us work out what the biomass is. And then from there, that biomass is entered into the ETS, which creates carbon credits, which can then be sold for quite a good price because of the story attached to them, which then helps fund the whole system and helps us with defraying our own carbon emissions. Yeah, interesting. Okay. One question I have about a digital twin then, I mean, I imagine it's not easy to set up and it requires some pretty specific expertise. What would cause an organization or a council to go, actually, I think we should start investing in in this stuff? So digital twins are still very new. Ours is by no means complete. 
And if you look at the cities and states around the world that are creating them, so places like New South Wales, Victoria, Helsinki, they're doing them for a variety of reasons. One of the things we're looking to do with ours is to create both a digital copy of the city, so a digital replica of the physical physicality of the cities we, yeah. we can then project on, changes onto. And basically by joining it to sensors and some of the artificial intelligence algorithms we use, machine learning, we can make it live and breathe with the city. But then we're also creating an organizational twin, which is a, a twin of the councils and its own processes. What that means is that it creates the platform for a new generation of services. So what you can do using things like technologies like regulation as code is create services that start to feed back to citizens instantly. So for example, you could put a model of your of the building you propose through a regulation as code engine and it will work out whether it complies or not or how much embodied carbon or what is the impact on the water system. We can't do this today, but we're getting the main ingredients in place. Mm. One of the things we we do do with the regulations as code work is creating a district plan which you can talk to. So mm. you tell it what you're trying to do and it answers your questions and <laughs> tells you which rules are required. Sort of a step on from, from the e-planning idea where you click on a property and it shows you just the rules that apply to you. Yeah. Uh, the reason we made that all those years ago was because, frankly, people like me were tired of reading. I don't know if you've read many district plans, but I've always said they're like onions. They're full of layers and they make you cry. Uh, <laughs> but the, yeah. the hardest thing about district plans is it's really difficult to tell what the intent is. It's hard to see how you actually get a house out of it. Yeah. And so what we're doing with this technology is trying to compensate for that and work and deliver the information people need to make their decisions yeah. and at least making them aware of what's easy and what's hard. Mm -hmm. uh, there's nothing worse than going into a situation which you think is going to be very straightforward and then suddenly ending up in this mind-boggling complexity mm. Mm. Um, i could hear in there some ways that it would be really helpful if i'm working in a council and i'm trying to figure out what should we do in this street or suburb or whatever you could map out potential scenarios and then people could look at them and interact with them in the system or yeah, if I'm an individual and I'm going, wanting to understand a particular place and what's happening, I could, again, see different potential scenarios, which at the moment is, is really hard to do and would require a lot of investment every single time you want to be able to provide that sort of contextual information. Yep. Mm. An example we were working on just before I went on holiday was we've got those local hosts to register whenever they walk past a dark space. And some of those dark spaces are empty shops. And so what that allows us to do is we have a great big three-dimensional model of the city and it's all sorts of pretty colours. And those pretty colours tell us what the uses of each shop are and whether it's vacant or uh, occupied. Mm. And so what that's helping us do is understand where are we getting vacancies in our streets? What are the causes of those vacancies? And they're not all to do with COVID. A lot of them are to do with earthquake strengthening and completely different or construction, different reasons. But then that is helping us shape what our arts response is. So with the upcoming Performance Arcade, there's a whole series of artist activations going in around the city. And that's mm. helping us understand where, where can we activate the city effectively. Mm. And Sean, as you're talking there, I was thinking as well that you're creating a massive asset. And I'm interested in how you've approached 
the transparency and ownership of data around that? Is it open source? Hey, anybody, you can come and take what we've done and build on it and use it. Or is council maintaining a stronger degree of ownership over it? So with things like the the maps of retailers, we haven't opened that data yet, largely because we're still working on it. But if you look at the three-dimensional models it's being projected onto, those are all open and available through our open data portal. One of the improvements I'm working on this year is making sure that those models are then available in more data formats. Because at the moment, they're, they're useful for GIS people, but they're not so useful <laughs> for architects. And right. I think it'd be quite useful if you could download a chunk of city for your uh, building application. So, mm. Yeah, and I guess that's... Okay. That's where I could see this stuff eventually becoming really powerful is when lots of different types of people are able to access it easily. So yeah, architects, engineers, ordinary people. Yep. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, what, what sort of, when you look at your crystal ball, when do you see the potential of something like a digital twin really starting to make an impact? It already does make an impact. The It's not going to get big for probably another six or 12 months so so some parts of it it's it's one of those things that because it's developed over time it's more like a mode of operation than necessarily a thing and so it's still coming into its thinghood if that makes sense (laughs) yeah it's growing up (laughs) yeah yeah it's still in that it's still a toddler or a teenager and and once it becomes reaches adulthood then it can be fully employed yes yeah and i mean some of the challenges we've got are there are about 74 councils in the country from memory each one of them is on a digital journey it would probably be quite useful if those digital estates matched up yeah so that we didn't all have different protocols and different things Mm. so the the standards conversations that are necessary to actually scale these twins into into a national infrastructure is still very much an ongoing conversation Um, yeah i'm going to take a guess it's probably what you and auckland council maybe christchurch city council are working on digital twins at the moment or is it just wellington no no auckland christchurch and wellington meet quite regularly Um, right okay for to talk about what our different innovation projects are and mm. how they how they work. Hamilton's working on one as well. Mm. Timaru do some really cool stuff. Mm. Dunedin will be up to something, but they've always been like the submarine of local government. They're not quite <laughs> nice what they're up to. <laughs> <laughs> Sean, another piece of jargon that I've been reading about a little bit is this idea of a smart city. And I'm guessing a digital twin is almost like a way of achieving a smart city. Can you tell us a bit more about what this means to be a smart city? To be honest, even though I work a great deal on smart cities, I've never come up with a decent definition of them. (laughs) So to me, a smart city is one where you're using tech and data in a way that fits with the culture of your city and helps its citizens achieve their best future, which means it looks quite different depending on where you go. Some of the advantages New Zealand has is we were relatively early movers in the smart cities movement, which means that we have an organic indigenous culture of smart cities. That's quite important because at its absolute worst, you can view tech as a new form of colonialism and mm. that, you know, 
the very large uh, multinationals determine how something is done. Yeah. And I mean, we looked at when we introduced things like digital contact tracing, one of the experiments we did there was an indigenous data sovereignty and making sure that we could engineer a system which allowed Wellingtonians to, to log their travel. Bear in mind, this was before the government digital tracing came out in a way where the data stayed with them and didn't get created into centralized lists and then converged that system with government tracing. So the definition of the smart city is kind of still emerging in a way, but I like what you say there, using technology to allow us people in a city to, to reach its potential or achieve whatever vision it is that the people have for that city. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, every city has its own challenges. Um, Wellington's particularly strong on resilience because of our earthquakes and our vulnerabilities to sea level rise. And so you see a lot of that smart city technology being used in the earthquake space to both with uh, seismic sensors, but we're also one of the few cities in the world that manages emergencies in the cloud and in, in 3D. And so that led to some really interesting discoveries during the Kaikoura earthquake. So for example, because our inspectors were logging their data through our systems into those big models, we could make decisions very quickly, but we could also see patterns of damage that weren't really apparent until you started to inquire in them. So for example, there was a tide mark at about the eighth floor on a certain scale of buildings, which were near the resonance frequency of the earthquake, which had extreme damage. Mm. We also um, did some really interesting work with expenditure. So Nobody in Wellington can go more than about 10 feet from a cup of coffee, in my experience. And so when we had difficulties following Kaikoura of working out which, which buildings had been occupied and which hadn't, we, we pulled down a lot of that expenditure data and went looking for food and drink before 11 a.m., mm. which is coffee. Anywhere yep. that that number was down a whole bunch is where we sent the building inspectors. And then that's how yeah. we got the, the lists of CEOs for our CEO to ring and see what the problem was. And... <laughs> Yeah, and you would never have anticipated that kind of use when you know the team was maybe six or seven years ago just getting formed, right? No, we, I mean, if you looked at it, we were developing expertise and expenditure data to try and work out the effectiveness of events. We didn't really think of it as a civil defense capability. Yeah, yeah. And there was something else you mentioned a little bit earlier. You were talking about regulation as code. Can you explain what that means? So my colleague Nadia is the absolute expert on this. Effectively, if you think about computer code, it's instructions for a machine to work. Legislation is kind of the same for a society. And so, I mean, in Latin, if I remember my Latin rightly, coda is law. Mm -hmm. No, lex is law. Coda would be the the bits of law. But effectively, what it's doing is programming those laws and regulations into machine executable code bases. So instead of it being written in a book, it's written into a machine, which means that it can then be expressed and visualized. So for example, we can show you what all the height limits in the city look like, rather than you having to read these enormous tables. (laughs) Uh, that sounds like a relief to anybody who's had to try and wade through yeah, some of the pretty lengthy documents that can come out of government or anybody who's studied law like I have. Yes, mm. I must admit, I was, not, I was never very good at law. I don't have the patience for it. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it, I guess it makes me wonder, you know, what if as a society we took 
you know, 50% of our people intelligence and resource that is currently spent on, you know, writing laws down and transitioned it into regulation as code as reimagining those laws and yeah, ways that engage other parts of the brain. Yeah, some pretty exciting possibilities from that. I mean, from a public service point of view, the magic of the regulation of its code is it makes the implementation of law much more transparent and much mm. more consistent. Mm. So, for example, there have been experiments done in the ACC, and what they've found is that they can much more assuredly work out entitlements for people and do it much more quickly and cheaply um, mm. than previously. Mm. So, yeah, it's as a technology, it's got an enormous amount of promise. Mm. So, for somebody again, like if there's a decision maker and a council or government who's listening to this and going, okay, I'm interested, is the starting point for them trying to figure out, well, what are the regulations that we've got that people are most commonly interacting with? The once the way I would do it is look at what are the regulations that are causing you the most pain to implement? So which ones have the heaviest administrative load? Mm. Which ones are constantly being contested? Mm. And I'd probably do it from that way around. Mm. The other useful thing about regulation as code is it allows you to test the implementation of regulation. So we've all encountered those laws which have extremely laudable aims, but when they arrive as an instruction to a public servant, they must mystify them. Yeah. <laughs> I've come across a couple where I have no idea how to actually do it. Mm. And so are you saying if you can sort of set up the regulation as code beforehand, then you can test it out in the system and see, oh, this is what it actually looks like when you get to a specific scenario? Yes. So for example, one of the tests I was doing on a rather crude version was working out which planning law rules would never be triggered so for example you might have a rule that's got a stricter threshold that's regulating something else which means that if you meet that rule you'll never actually have to do this other rule so the other rule mm. could probably be got rid of right sean really interesting stuff and my mind is is getting expanded talking to you that's for sure and there's sort of this interesting balance that i'm noticing where between one, just getting interested in the technology for interest sake, and then two, trying to also think at the same time, like what's the relevance right now? But it does feel, I guess, like you're a couple of steps ahead or in the next chapter of the next book. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. One of the core things we're trying to do as innovation officers is prepare our organizations for what these transitions look like. And so effectively, the future has a digital aspect to it under any scenario mm. and if our people are going to serve their communities in the best way possible they have to be conversant with that future i mean there's nothing more terrifying than that situation you find where the junior's been given the computer to make the decision because it's a digital one when it has enormous ethical and if it wasn't on a computer you would never have given it to such a, a young person to do mm. Sean, I'm just wondering, is there anything else you'd want to talk about that you think is pretty interesting in your work or that others might learn from? I think probably the only other interesting bit is around how we join communities. So I've always been a big proponent of not starting conversations, just joining them. And so 
I've always been a fairly active participant in things like the, the hackathons that are held in different communities or supporting different groups. At the moment I'm just working out how to support a group that want to do a really cool project around measuring water quality in urban streams. Mm. And so how public servants can really get involved in those communities so that they can learn and that those communities can benefit from their experience is really quite an interesting challenge we're mm. finding. Mm, I like that you mentioned the hackathon because I think for a lot of people that's that can be a really safe entry point to understanding more about innovation technology and what that might actually look like yeah I haven't been on one for ages but the first one that I went on was a real it was a real eye-opener for me as to what how you take data and information and make sense of this and, and how you can suddenly create things quite quickly. So yeah, I like that you mentioned that. Yeah, I've always really enjoyed them. The uh, I always tell people they're not a replacement for procurement because you have no idea what you're actually going to yeah. get. Yeah. <laughs> but in terms of developing your understanding and getting yeah. connected with your community, I can't think of a better method. Yeah, yeah. Sean, thank you so much for your time, especially as you're still on holiday to meet with me and share some of your very forward-thinking work, Digital Twins, Smarter Cities. Yeah, I feel like I've got a much better understanding, not just of what the concepts are, but how they can actually be useful for communities and citizens. So thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Beyond Consultation podcast. What did you learn from the show? What should we have talked about? Who else should I interview? I would love to hear your feedback. And if you want to learn more about what you heard today, everything from the show is at www.businesslab.co.nz podcast. If this episode has left you with a burning question, please feel free to submit a voice message through the link on our podcast page. We can then ask that question of a guest in a future episode. Or tag me in a post on LinkedIn or Facebook and I can point you in the right direction. If you want to know when we release new episodes, make it easier for yourself and subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. Again, thank you for listening. Nga mihi mo te whakaronga.